0: Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's Private Equity Practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization.
1: Hello and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice based here in New York City. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome two very special guests who are going to share their insights with us regarding deal sourcing, investment themes to watch, and much more. First, I'd like to welcome to the program, Dan Ryan. Dan is a Managing Director and Head of Business Development at Mid-Ocean Partners. It's great to have you on the podcast, Dan. Thanks, Todd. Good to be with you. Awesome. Next, I'd like to introduce John Lenahan, who is a partner at Winco Private Holdings. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, you bet. All right. Well, let's jump into it, guys. Dan, is again, is uh, Managing Director and Head of Business Development at MidOcean. Uh, can you tell our listeners about the company's focus and your role?
2: Sure. Yeah, Todd. MidOcean is a mid-market buyout fund investing in consumer and business services companies. The firm was founded in 2003 after spinning out from Deutsche Bank, and we're now investing out of our fifth fund, a $1.2 billion committed fund. Uh, I joined MidOcean earlier this year to help build and run the firm's business development function. So I spend most of my time with our working uh, alongside our deal partners and and operating
1: resources
2: to generate new investment opportunities and and to manage relationships with our deal referral sources and financing partners.
1: Awesome, well, I I talk to you on a regular basis and I know how busy you are, so appreciate you uh, joining us again. John, turning to you as a, a partner at Winco Private Holdings. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the firm?
3: Sure. My, my partner and I started Wincove in 2008. Really, as we were an independent sponsor. Uh, and in 2015, had a few exits of those independent sponsor deals and formed our current vehicle off of those, uh, which we call Wincove Private Holdings. We call it a permanent capital vehicle, which is essentially a, a hybrid of a PE fund and a holding company where we have an indefinite investment horizon our focus is really on the lower middle market. Uh, for the most part our trans- transactions are built on a partnership with a business owner who is looking for a recap to take some cash out of the business but also looking to bring in some support to take some operational weight off of them while also going for that second bite at the Apple. Uh, we currently have nine platform companies and have completed, I think 15 add-on acquisitions to those companies since we launched in 2015.
1: So probably just, just as busy as Dan. All right, I appreciate that uh, background, John. I'm going to stay with you for the, the next question. I did notice, uh, as you as you alluded to, Wincove is not a traditional investment firm that invests through serial funds, but that the the holding company has a permanent equity capital base. Maybe you could share more about the uniqueness of that approach with our listeners.
3: sure. Sure. So in, in, our, in our days before raising a fund, which we didn't like not having a fund, but one thing we did like was we realized that many small business owners really liked that we weren't from some big PE firm. And, and, and many of them, what we found, were nervous about this three to five-year buyer flipping that sort of thing that often you read about in the papers, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, uh, about private equity. Um, And at the same time, we saw that with small companies, it can take a long time to make things work, and you really, really need to be patient uh, to realize your investment thesis. So when we did raise committed capital, we wanted to to keep that flexibility for a longer term hold period uh, and, and, and came up with this structure. And there's really two main differences with our structure versus the traditional blind pool model. First is, as I said before, we we have an indefinite fund life. So we'll never be in a position where we're forced to exit a business because of our fund. Uh, and, and the second is we can recycle capital, including profits. So we don't have this pressure to put marks on the board um, to raise the next fund because we can generate that capital internally. And, and, and really this stemmed from what we often found was we saw in traditional private equity, we often sold the best companies first, and we just we thought that that didn't make sense. Um, we're able to do this because our investor base is individuals and families. Uh, I don't, I don't. This structure would probably have some challenges for a more institutional investor base, um, but our investors are very—they're committed to this longer-term uh, buy-and-hold kind of the model, so it works. Yeah. No. Very interesting,
1: certainly uh, unique. So I appreciate that insight. Dan, we'll come back to you. Uh, I happen to uh, see that you presented at a uh, ACG webinar this summer. Um, uh, I think the title was the new normal in emerging deal terms and structures. Uh, and from what I remember of, of, of what I saw the webinar, uh, you were uh, discussing how the disruption to the credit and deal markets due to COVID-19 Will really have a deep and lasting impact on how we structure M and A deals for the foreseeable future. So I am getting to a question here for our audience. Perhaps you can share uh, some of the key takeaways from your remarks that our listeners should know about.
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah. First, that was my uh, that was my first time presenting on a virtual panel. I realized that's not an easy thing to do when you can't read the audience at all. Right. It's like right you can see the number of people in the in the room, but you're kind of talking to yourself, um, three people on the panel with us. So it was, it was tricky, but it was, we actually had a really good discussion. I mean, that was early June and the market has changed uh, dramatically since then. I mean, I remember just trying to staff the panel, it was very difficult to find a lender who was willing to join because a lot of the lenders then didn't have much to talk about, obviously in terms of new deal activity, they were focused on Portfolio management, and um, and weren't comfortable representing their firm's appetite for risk because no one really knew, uh, you know, what um, what to expect from the market. I and mean, today, you probably have a difficult time staffing a panel of lenders because they're so busy. So the market really has changed dramatically. But I think there are a couple of key takeaways from from that event in in June that that still apply today. And those are speed and sector expertise. I don't think it's ever been more important uh, than it is today for investors and advisors and lenders to really understand the industry segment and the business model that they're looking at and to be able to move quickly. Uh, I mean, that was certainly the case then um, in a very kind of uncertain and volatile environment, and it is so still so today. Um, as as the market comes back, snaps back pretty quickly uh from from those days. And uh, and it's in a in, you know wildly competitive market. And for example, we've seen sale processes launched over the last couple of weeks where buyers are hoping to transact by year end for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So you gotta move, you, you have to know what you're looking at, and you have to be able to move quickly.
1: Yep. Good takeaways. Thanks for sharing those. So, speaking of the uh, the deal environment we're in, uh, John, turning to you, maybe you could share some of the fund level adjustments you've considered since the onset of the uh, coronavirus recession.
3: Sure, I would say overall there hasn't been a huge shift. Overall, we're we're staying the course, and I wouldn't say we've fundamentally changed any of our long term goals. There's definitely been more of a focus on the portfolio for 2020, which. Isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, I will say, COVID has probably pushed back some some exits we, we might have been considering in the next twelve to eighteen months. So I, I agree with, with Dan. There's definitely you definitely feel a shift where I think two months ago you probably weren't a thought about. It would have been a very special circumstance to consider bringing a company to market, and, and you see more and more activity. Um, what, we are probably th- we are thinking a little more pro- proactively about growing our investor base just because um, we think there are going to be a lot of opportunities out there as the dust starts to settle and we want to be well positioned to, to go after them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Appreciate that, John.
1: Next, I'd like to turn it over to our Coffee Break guest, Michael Lay, Principal at BDO Digital. Let's hear what Michael has to say.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Michael Lee from BDO Digital. I would like to share with you today why data-driven portfolio visibility is an essential part of private equity digital strategy. Accurate and timely insight is important for any business, but even more so for private equity funds that are managing multiple portfolio companies and new investment targets. The actionable insights from data can help a fund decide where to focus their dry powder, to find new and different ways to exploit the market, or to quickly identify trouble spots in their portfolio. PE firms typically have an established process for receiving reports from their portfolio on a regular basis. In many organizations, we typically see three types of challenges in the reporting process. First, the process is largely manual, typically relying on complex homegrown spreadsheets and other means that are just not conducive for collaboration, automation, or for real-time analysis. Such process, at best, provides lagging indicators about the business. Second, because the process is so manual, and by the time the reports are generated, they are often stale, and the market may have already shifted in significant ways. Not to mention the burden on the people creating the reports and those who need to digest them for actionable insight. Third, because each portfolio company has their own set of systems and sources of data, it is difficult to standardize reporting at the fund level. So what do leading firms do? They first create a single source of truth by abstracting and decoupling the data from underlying systems so that regardless of where all the raw data live, they are able to collect and analyze information. Leading PEs also invest in the right technology, starting with a solid data strategy on architecture, automation, and artificial intelligence that can provide leading indicators for predictive and prescriptive insights. BDO's 2020 Digital Transformation Survey found that among the companies which rated their digital initiative as successful, 86% reported net profitability increases. Although the importance of data-driven portfolio visibility is nothing new, the extraordinary set of market challenges that we have seen in 2020 have highlighted the urgency for action. For example, how do you know which portco is experiencing operational issues in what specific ways, And what can you do about those problems in a timely manner? Wrong decisions can be costly, but having the right data-driven strategy can make all the difference. Data is the currency of the digital economy. And as we anticipate a macroeconomic recovery, we believe that data-driven portfolio visibility that provides PE funds the leading indicators rather than lagging indicators is an essential, if not a critical part of private equity digital strategy. Now back over to you, Todd.
1: Thanks, Michael. Now let's return to our conversation with John Lenihan and Dan Ryan. Guys, I'm going to throw the next topic out to both of you. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of the shifts in approach to sourcing deals that you've seen since the pandemic started? Uh, Dan, maybe you weigh in first and then we'll hear from John. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah. at the start of the pandemic, I, I spent nearly all of my
2: time reaching out to restructuring advisors, uh, like like pat fodal with with bdo and and direct lenders and attorneys and, and other sponsors to make sure that mid-ocean was in front of all the special situation investment opportunities that we expected to see um, as it turned out that 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 wave of opportunities never really materialized in the middle market for a variety of we, reasons we can talk about uh, but i think that was a good um, kind of a healthy uh, phase for mid ocean I think mean, we really forged a new channel of non traditional deal flow uh, w- which I think will work to our benefit going forward uh, as our fund mandate allows us to invest in in non control situations outside of the restructuring market outreach uh, in terms of you know new tactics around deal sourcing i've i 've become a big fan of the virtual banker hosted industry conference um, I've attended a number of them over the last several months, and I think it's a highly efficient way for, for my partners, my deal partners and I, to get in front of uh, management team executives. And uh, you you can cover a lot more ground when you do that virtually. Um, you know, there's a quick meeting, so you never really made a, a deep personal connection in the past. Um, and so you, you, you get that face-to-face, I think, it, and it's very effective, highly efficient.
3: Yeah, I like it. John, what, what are you seeing? So COVID has definitely shifted uh, more of a focus to add-ons for us. We know those markets a lot better. And to the extent there's questions about where earnings are on a company, that and valuation is a little less important because there's other ways for us to create, uh, to drive value with those acquisitions. So we we like, we, we've continued to pursue add-ons throughout this um, I think my sense is that there's a limited supply of good companies out there, and and I don't know if that's necessarily so much because of performance as it might be because of logistics, but my sense is that for good companies that are being brought to market, there's still very, very robust levels of activity. Um, So we're not really really chasing those, um, but that has been a surprise. I like the, I like the virtual aspect of things to a degree because you can, uh, you can see a lot more companies, you can meet a lot more people, but I I still think ultimately if you're going to pursue something, you got to kick the tires, you got to shake their hands. Um, it's just, it is nice to be able to, to get things a little bit further along before you do that. Sure. Sure. Well, we're
1: certainly, uh, on the BDO front, we're, we're trying to be creative and host a lot of virtual events that we used to uh, do in person, but uh, good, good to get both of your perspectives. So let's uh, shift gears again, and Dan, I'll come to you. Um, I read about uh, the key investment themes being at the uh, the core of Mid-Ocean Partners investment approach. Uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so Mid-Ocean, Todd, has had a thesis-driven investment focus. Uh, since the outset of the firm with, with proprietary executive resources being a core component to the model uh, throughout our history, really. And, and you know, so, so today, whether it's you know managed service provider businesses or, or the behavioral health space or direct-to-consumer models, food and bev, information services and data, each of our deal team leads is working one to three, call it, live investment themes on any given day. And around each of those, we have a white paper, we have multiple operating partners, we have real conviction across the firm and the investment committee. And back to my early point, earlier point around uh, around speed, that helps us move a little more assertively in the market, right, and we can be a provider of, of real kind of strategic value-added capital Uh, thanks to the work that goes into these investment themes up front.
1: Yeah, well, sounds like a a solid approach, Dan, so thanks for sharing. We're actually going to transition to our last topic. I know uh, you guys are having a ton of fun and it's going quick, but let's jump into it. I'd like to give a plug to uh, BDO's recently released private capital pulse survey. The survey actually found that three quarters of fund managers expect the economy to perform better in 2021 And yet, over half are conducting business continuity risk assessments in preparation for a second wave of COVID 19. So, again, maybe I'll start with Dan and then hear from John. Does this surprise you in any way? And would you have responded the same or differently?
2: Not really surprised to see it. Honestly, Todd, I think this is kind of cautious optimism in my mind. Uh, I do think that there are certain areas of of the of our market, like in travel and hospitality, and some of the areas of the service economy, that will continue to feel the effects uh, of the pandemic for some time. But but you know, I think we've what we've seen in the middle market um, is, is that there's just a ton of liquidity out there to support companies uh, in our market that will will kind of help drive growth um you know there as as John mentioned earlier you know focus on add on acquisitions you're going to see a lot of inorganic growth a lot of you know capital going into organic growth initiatives as well uh and so i think that's kind of why you're seeing some opti- optimism around uh, economic performance growth next year
3: right that sounds good john what's your take yeah i, I agree with everything everything Dan said, I think cautious optimism is is definitely the operative phrase that we see. I think for industries that didn't have a direct hit from the pandemic, I think we see within our management teams, they're very excited to get back out there, to start meeting with customers, start going after growth opportunities. At the same time, they want to be ready for anything, um, whether it's cases in their own facilities or second wave or, or whatever. And so um, we'll see, but I, I, am I think cautious optimism is definitely the, the word of the day or yeah. words yeah. of the day.
1: <laughs> let me, uh, so let me ask you this, this one last point. Uh, the survey also found that, uh, directing capital toward applying equity relief to portfolio companies is down 15%, uh, compared to last year. So why do you think that is and where do you see capital going instead? Uh, again, Dan, start with you, and then go to John.
2: Yeah. So this is this is a surprising stat for me, Todd. When you think yeah. about year over year comparison, defensive capital deployment being down year over year. Um, you know, as we uh, uh, you know, as we deal with this um, this economic uncertainty, I think the number may be very different if you if you if you take the survey at the end of the year. My my view is that there are a lot of companies and sponsors and lenders that have been in kick the can down the road mode for the last like three, six months, right? And so, you know, companies have been really good about freeing up capital, freeing up cash through cost-cutting measures, through improved working capital management. Sponsors, um, you know, have been, I know our guys were working day and night with our management teams to help in that regard. Uh, and to work with our lenders and, and leverage situations, lenders I think have been pretty cooperative and, and flexible, uh, where um, you, you know where companies are in compliance on on the principal and interest side. So that flexibility, you know, you know, that that improved management around working capital and cash management is great. Probably can't keep that up forever. And so I think if you think about the you know, defensive capital deployment in our market uh, is through 2020 on the whole. If you if you take this survey at the end of the year or in the first quarter as a look back, I think that number may be different, and I I find it hard to believe that it would be down year over year. Personally.
3: Okay, appreciate that, John. What do you think? I, I agree. I was surprised it was down, um, or it was going to be down. I thought maybe there was some concern about throwing good money after bad, and if, if you did have some of these companies in in retail or restaurants or hospitality, that maybe maybe some companies were just or some maybe some investment firms were just pulling the plug on it. But I would still think that there would be uh, equity relief going in in a number of situations. Um, We have seen late, uh, we have seen lenders be quite patient, but I think that I agree with Dan. I think that can can definitely expect that to change uh, and evolve in the next, uh, next few months here. Um, And I think part of it could be a a matter of perspective too. I mean, there's situations where we're we're looking at putting capital in a company. We really see it more to facilitate growth, but at the same time, it's, 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 such that the balance sheet isn't constrained as the company looks to fund growth. So I don't know if we necessarily think of it as equity relief as so much as facilitating growth. Right. I think All that's right, a well,
2: really interesting point, John. I think you hit on a, a, good, a good nuance there and it comes down to how uh, people may define you know, defensive capital uh, differently. And so you talk about growth investments, you can think about it on the M&A side too, right? If you have a company that may need an infusion, maybe you'd you'd turn that into an offensive infusion uh, through an add-on acquisition or two, right?
3: Private equity has been known to spin spin their performance every now and then. (laughs) We'll definitely have
1: to see how uh, this all plays out. Listen, I appreciate you both taking time to join the Perspectives podcast. Again, John Lenahan with Winco Private Holdings and Dan Ryan with Mid-Ocean Partners. I, uh, I appreciate my uh, personal relationship with both of you and certainly the uh, relationships that uh, BDO uh, has with both of your firms. So thank you very much. I know you're both busy, guys. Appreciate you being on with me today. Hope you had a good time. Absolutely, Thanks, yeah. Time. Awesome. Thanks, Todd. to right. with you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, guys. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.
0: Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives.